Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming. I'm Steven Spatz, Assistant Outreach Librarian, and on behalf of Library Director Joe Lucia and the staff of Falvey Memorial Library, I'd like to welcome you to a special event in this semester's Scholarship at Villanova Lecture Series, the Outstanding Faculty Research Award Lecture. <coughs> Supporting the production of original research is central to the mission of Villanova University, and one of the ways in which the exceptional scholarly achievements of our community are recognized is through the annual presentation to one deserving faculty member of the Outstanding Faculty Research Award. Each spring semester, we're proud to host the current recipient of the award as they present their work here in the library. Before we begin, I'd like to inform you that the scholarship at Villanova series will continue on Thursday, March 24th at 3 p.m. when Villanova professors and co-editors, Dr. Celia Nagy-Zekmi and Dr. Karen Hollis, will present on their new anthology entitled Truth to Power, Public Intellectuals in and Out of Academia. Information on this and all other library events is available on posters around the library and on our website, the website library.villanova.edu. And this afternoon, we're pleased to have with us the 2010 Outstanding Faculty Research Award recipient, Dr. Charles L. Folk. Dr. Folk is a professor of psychology and the director of the Villanova University Cognitive Science Program he earned his Ph.D. in Cognitive Psychology from Johns Hopkins University in 1987. And before he came to Villanova in 1989, he did a National Science Foundation Fellowship at NASA's Ames Research Center. His research on attentional capture and selective attention is the focus of the Adult Visual Cognition Laboratory here at Villanova University. And this work has been widely documented in journals such as Perception and Psychophysics, Visual Cognition, and the Journal of Exper uh, Experimental Psychology, and in his edited volume entitled, Attraction, Distraction, and Action, Multiple Perspectives on Attentional Capture. Would you please join me in welcoming 2010 Outstanding Faculty Research Award recipient, Dr. Charles L. Folk. Thank you, Stephen, and I'd like to thank the library for inviting me to give this talk. I'm happy to do it, and I want to also thank them for this, this lovely graphic. The folks in the library created this graphic, and I think it's really cool, so I might be using it from now on, actually. Um, so I, I assume this is a rather general audience, although I do see a lot of psychology people here. But uh, this talk is geared towards a, ge a general audience, so I'm, I'm going to try to keep it relatively non-technical. But if at any point I talk about stuff that you're uh, confused about, just stop me and, and ask me a question. Um, so given that it's a general audience, I thought what I'd first do is to give you um, a sense of where I sit in the field of psychology, because oftentimes there's misconceptions about what psychology is all about. So when you think about the field of psychology, um, there are really kind of two branches to psychology. One is an applied branch, and this is the branch that most of the general public is aware of. So applied psychology deals with fields like clinical psychology, uh, industrial organizational, human factors, psychology. So here uh, you have psychologists who are working in the real world trying to solve real world problems. But there's another branch of psychology known as basic or experimental psychology. And the goal here is really to build models of human behavior and mental functioning and so forth um, without necessarily being um, directly interested in how that might be applied. The hope, obviously, is that those principles that you gain through experimental research will eventually be used in applied settings. So in the case of uh, that branch of psychology, there are a number of subfields. So things like developmental psychology, social psychology, physiological psychology, cognitive psychology. So all of these deal with um, different aspects of human behavior. 
So my research fits right in that category right there. So I consider myself a cognitive psychologist. But even cognitive psychology consists of lots of different subfields, such as perception, attention, memory, language, reasoning, and so forth. So within that uh, a group, I sit right there. So my research is on attention. Um, and even within attention, there are lots of kind of sub-literatures in attention. And that's what I'll, uh, I'll be getting into. Um, so what I want to do, first of all, before I actually talk about my research and attention, is tell you a little bit more about cognitive psychology and how you do cognitive psychology, um, because it's directly relevant to the kinds of experiments that I'll be talking about. So the basic idea behind cognitive psychology is that we're trying to build what we call functional models of cognition. And what I mean by a functional model is a model that focuses on the functions that the brain performs. Okay? And there are a number of assumptions that underlie this particular approach. So one of the basic assumptions is that this brain in our heads is an information <coughs> processor. Okay, just like a computer is an information processor, our brain is an information processor. And what this means is that it's a device that represents information. It's a device that applies processes and operations to those representations um, that ultimately result in the kind of behavior that we observe. Okay, so just as a computer might represent information and perform calculations on, that uh, on those representations in order to give you uh, the output on the computer screen, the same idea is, is uh, uh, related to the brain. The brain is an information processor that's performing these kinds of calculations. Now here's the key point about cognitive psychology, and that is that these processes that act on representations inside the head can be modeled at what we call a functional level. And what I mean by that is we can model these processes independent of how they're carried out in the brain. So we know that ultimately the brain is the thing that's, that's uh, carrying out these processes. But the notion is that we can model those processes without having to worry too much about the brain. Um, so we can focus on the kinds of functions that the brain performs rather than worrying so much about how those functions are carried out. Okay? How do we do that? How do you model processes that you can't directly observe at this kind of functional level? Well, here's the basic approach. The idea is that we infer these mental processes that we can't directly observe. We make inferences about those pro uh, processes and representations based on objective measurements of behavior. And in particular, things like reaction time, how long it takes you to respond to a stimulus, or the kinds of errors that you might make when you're performing a task. And so the notion is, by looking at those patterns of reaction times and error rates, we can make inferences about what kinds of processes must go on between the presentation of a stimulus and when someone emits some kind of behavior. Okay? So that's the basic approach. And by the way, this isn't unique to cognitive psychology. Physicists do this all the time. So no physicist has actually seen a quark. It is a construct that we infer based on the kind of path, the data that's left behind in, in uh, atomic collisions. So it's the same basic approach. Okay? Now, my work is, uh, deals with this construct that we call attention. And I refer to that as a construct because, again, no one's ever seen attention. No one's ever opened up the brain and said, oh, there it is. There's attention in there. It is this construct that we infer based on observable behavior. Okay? 
So why do we need a construct like attention? Well, let me give you a couple of, uh, I'm going to show you a couple of film clips. And hopefully it will demonstrate why we need a construct like attention. Okay, the first film clip I'm going to show you is um, of an interview with an Air Force pilot um, where he's talking about a particular battle he was engaged in during the Vietnam War. Okay, so just uh, take a listen to this. A lot of things going on. Uh, our radar warning equipment was giving us warning that the missiles were being launched against us. We didn't know whether that was true or false. I had uh, intelligence coming from an agency in real time. They were telling me that MiGs were coming up behind us and were going to attack. We had uh, ground control from a carrier out in the uh, Tonkin Gulf telling us where the MiGs were approximately relative to us. We were listening to the people that we were escorting. There were other people that were uh, suppressing the uh, anti-aircraft uh, artillery at the SAMs, all on the same frequency or on various frequencies that we were listening to. Uh, I could hear the growl from my air-to-air -air missiles. The heat seekers uh, have a distinctive sound that you hear in the headset when you have them selected. And of course, all the noise from the radar warning equipment. As it happened, the MiG came up behind me and my wingman saw him and tried to warn me of the MiG. And I never heard the warning. I saw a missile go by, presumably his first shot, which he missed, and uh, tried to turn out of the way. But uh, luckily, I did turn out of the way. The second shot only damaged my airplane slightly, and I was able to bring the airplane back. But I never heard my wingman calling me, trying to tell me there was a MiG behind me. When I got back, I listened to the tape of the mission, and clear as day, he had told me that the MiG was there and what I should do to avoid the attack. I didn't hear it. I was totally saturated. So there you have a situation where there's physical evidence that his wingman told him about this MiG coming up behind him. So clearly that information reached his ears, but somehow it didn't get into his head. Okay? So how do we account for that? Well, we're going to argue that this construct of attention is what we need to account for that. Let me show you uh, one other this is a, a participation one. Okay, I'm going to show you a clip of a very boring conversation. So what they're saying is not important, but just watch this clip for a second. Hi, Sabina. Hi. It's been a long time since I've seen you. Yeah, it's great to see you, Andrea. So how did you get here? Uh, I took the subway from Middleton, and it took only about half an hour. Really? I drove from Gresham, and it took 45 minutes. Hmm, hooray right for public transportation. So why did you call me here for this mysterious meeting? <clears throat> I'm planning a surprise party for Jerome, and I need your help to keep him away from the house. That's great. I'll do anything you need. Good. I hate surprise parties, but only when I'm the victim. Otherwise, they're great. Very good. Okay, so pretty poor acting and pretty boring conversation. Did you notice anything kind of unusual about what was going on in that clip? Some of you, I'm sure, did because you've seen this before. Maybe not this particular one. I want you to view it again. And this time, I want you to, what I'm going to say, pay attention to a couple of things. I want you to pay attention to the woman on the left, no, right, the right, and the scarf around her neck, okay? I also want you to pay attention to the plates on the table. 
Sabina. Hi. It's been a long time since I've seen you. Yeah, it's great to see you. Notice we have red plates with the so food right there. Oh, I took the Notice her scarf is gone. And it took only about half an hour. Really? I drove from Gresham and it's scarf is back. minutes. Hmm, hooray for public transportation. So why do you Plates are white. Oh Scarf is back. Plates are red. That's great. I'll do anything. The food is now on the other plate. I hate Otherwise, they're great. Okay. So hopefully you get the uh, you get the idea here that you all viewed that video clip, right? Those images reached your retina. It was encoded at some level on your retina, but for some reason it didn't get into your head enough that you would be able to notice those kinds of changes. In fact, in the, in the movie industry, there's, a, there's an editor that's responsible for making sure that those kinds of errors don't occur. It's called, anybody know the name of it? Continuity editor, right. So a continuity editor is responsible for making sure that there aren't uh, these kinds of, of errors. Actually, there are websites out there that document in all kinds of popular films really bad clips where that uh, continuity editor has, uh, has broken down. But guess what? It doesn't really matter because we don't notice it. So these are examples where we need a construct like attention to be able to account for the fact that we're not noticing those <laughs> kinds of pretty blatant changes. Just one other example of this is uh, the fact that um, your risk of getting in an accident when you're talking on the cell phone while driving is the same as if you were legally drunk. Okay? And here's the other interesting thing. That's true whether you're dealing with a handheld phone or hands-free phone. So it's clearly not just manipulating the device that's influencing your ability to monitor what's going on while you're driving. Something's happening in your head when you're talking on the cell phone and driving at the same time. So all of these are examples of behavior that somehow we have to account for. So why is it that it's difficult to drive and talk on the phone at the same time? Why it's difficult to notice things when we seem to be overloaded? Or even in the case of the movie clips, when we're not really overloaded, we just don't notice things unless we are paying attention to them. Well, here's the idea. We propose this construct of attention, and we just say, okay, let's suppose that there is some sort of mental energy that we might call attention, and that there are certain kinds of cognitive processes that need that energy to get done, right? You have to apply these resources in order to carry out these kinds of processes. And let's also assume that those resources are limited. We only have a certain amount of resources with which to, to process uh, stimuli, for example, okay? Given those first two, we have to assume that if you have limited resources and you're in a situation where there's lots of information to be processed, then the, in fact there's more information to be processed than resources available to process, then you're going to need some sort of mechanism that decides at any given point in time um, which operations or which stimuli are going to get attended to or processed. Okay? And that's a subconstruct of attention that we call selective attention. So this mechanism that's responsible for determining how those limited resources are allocated, we refer to as selective attention. So my research is in the area of selective attention. All right, um, just to give you one more feel for this notion of selective attention in the visual modality, you all know who this is, right? Yeah, very good, all right. So if you know him so well, you should be able to find him without any trouble at all. 
So as soon as you as soon as you find Waldo, just raise your hand. Just whoa, that's good. Okay, found one. So as soon as you find, just raise your hand. So you know these you know red shirt, red and white striped shirt. Okay, it's in the upper half of the picture. Okay, it's in the upper left quadrant of the picture. Now I realize that part of the problem here is it's difficult to see because these guys are kind of small. So he's he's right here carrying a stack of books. Okay. Now obviously, as I said, part of the difficulty here is that it's hard to kind of resolve detail. And certainly one of the limitations on the visual processing system is the fact that we have eyes that, uh, that, that you need to put stimuli in the fovea to resolve detail. But we know that there's something else going on here. There's not enough resources available to process all the uh, people in this particular scene. Imagine if there were. If we had unlimited resources, then it wouldn't matter where Waldo is. We'd know exactly where he is because we'd be able to process every single item in that display without any limitations at all. But instead, what we find ourselves doing is engaging in this kind of effortful search where we're moving from one area to another looking for particular features, okay? That gives you a feel for this, this notion of allocating limited resources. Visual search is an example of how we allocate those limited resources. The reason we have to search is because resources are in fact limited. So that's selective attention in the visual modality. Uh, here's another example. And you can tell this is a very old slide based on the, the uh, numbers up here. This is, this is a gas pump. And we've got gas going for $1.55 a gallon. Um, have you ever gone into a gas station and pulled up to the gas station, gotten out of the car to, to, to fill up your car, and stood there for about 30 seconds trying to find the start button? Right? And you feel, you know, the, you know, the guy in the booth is laughing at you as you're trying to figure out how to turn the pump on. Makes you feel stupid, right? Well, this kind of display is a display that has too much information. And we have to engage in this kind of selective allocation until we find the thing we're looking for. I don't even think it's on this particular, I don't even know where it is in here. Anyway, so all of these are examples are visu of visual selective attention. Okay. So one question we can ask as a cognitive psychologist about visual selective attention is the following. At any given point in time, what determines where those allocate, uh, where those uh, limited resources are allocated. In other words, what determines where attention goes at any given point in time? Okay. Um, if you think about it, there are two, at least two logical possibilities. One is that it's some sort of voluntary strategy. That is, we simply decide, oh, I'm going to attend over there, or I'm, hopefully you're all deciding to attend to me or the screen right now, rather than to the, the coffee bar over there. But there's another possibility, and that is that there may be certain conditions under which things in the environment kind of grab our attention, where attention is pulled by something rather than us pushing our attention to a location or object. And that notion of involuntary allocation of attention is referred to as attentional capture. And so that's really the phenomenon that I'm interested in and, and the, the phenomenon that I've been doing research on for, for 20 or more years and that's what I'm going to be focusing on. So that's all a preamble to my, my research. Um, but before, actually one little last preamble before I get into actually what the kinds of studies I do, you might ask the question, why do we really care? All right, do, why, is this, why is this important? Well, there are two answers. One from a kind of um, 
let's say, um, tenure perspective, um, it's important to, for a professor to build interesting theoretical models that get published in journals in, uh, in the literature so that we can get tenure and promotion and so forth. Plus there's that kind of um, uh, intellectual excitement about building models and trying to figure out how the, how the mind works. But there's also another reason, and that is that these models of selective attention have important applied implications, right? So there are lots of situations in the world where understanding how attention gets allocated or trying to predict the conditions under which we're going to uh, miss something or not notice something, um, given those situations, it's going to be important to have models of how the selective attention mechanism works. So things like air traffic controllers or uh, luggage screeners at the airport, these are visual search tasks, right? So the more we understand about selective attention, the better we're going to be at designing better displays that help the operator find the, the gun in the luggage or, or uh, make sure that the air traffic controller doesn't miss some airplane that's, that's flown into his or her airspace. Okay? So there are lots of applied domains in which selective attention plays an important role, so it's going to be important to, to try to model this, this mechanism. Okay, so how do we study this hypothetical mechanism that we call selective attention? There are two ways, it, well, there's more than two ways, but the two main ways are visual search tasks. So we bring people in the laboratory and we give them um, search displays where they look for particular kinds of targets and we measure the response time as a function of lots of different factors. And then we infer based on the patterns of reaction times to finding targets. Um, I'm not going to talk about visual search tasks. I'm going to talk about another task that's been used to study selective attention, and in particular, attentional capture. And that's something called spatial cueing tasks. Okay? So here's the way this task works. First of all, we start with very simple display. So rather than going right to the real world stuff, okay, where you've got lots of variables that might affect performance, we strip it down in the laboratory and we make very simple displays and then manipulate very uh, carefully factors and then uh, help us uh, build models of the selective attention mechanism. So in the case of the spatial cueing test, we might start with a display like this, which consists of a fixation cross and then four boxes. And the way this works is that at some point in a given trial in this experiment, a target character appears in one of those four boxes. You don't know where it's going to show up. It's equally often in one of those four boxes. And let's say that character could be an X or an equals. And the task would be to press the right button if it's an X or the left button if it's an equals. And we could measure your response time to do that. Now notice that you're responding to the identity of the target and not to its location. All right, so location is irrelevant. You're just responding to identity. Um, and as I said, we measure response time. So let's try it. So I'm going to put a target up there in one of those four boxes. Uh, just kind of on your legs, you know, right finger, left finger. If it's an X, press with your right, or just tap your uh, thigh with your right finger. If it's an equals, tap your thigh with your left finger. Ready? Here we go. There you go. That's the task, right? Now, hopefully you realize that wasn't instantaneous. So it took some amount of time for you to actually tap your leg. So we're interesting, well, what's going on in that interval between that X showed up and when you were able to tap your leg? Probably about three, four hundred milliseconds. Um, okay. So that's the basic task, although this is just one condition in the experiment. In another condition in the experiment, what we do is prior to the presentation of the target, we provide what we call a cue that provides information um, regarding where the target is likely to occur. 
And there's all kinds of cues you can use, but one thing you could do is put four little dots around one of those four boxes. Okay, so this is prior to the target. Um, and what we do is across trials, we manipulate something called the validity of the cue. So most of the time, the cue is valid in that the target appears where the cue showed up, right? So there's uh, a valid trial because the target appeared where the cue flashed on, okay? And in this particular experiment, the cue might be valid 75% of the time. So most of the time, the cue tells you where the target's going to be. However, on 25% of the trials, you get fooled, right? So the cue might, um, it would be invalid in the sense that it might show up in one location and the target would show up in a different location. So that would be an example of an invalid cue trial. Um, and as I said, that in this particular version of it, that might happen on 25% of the trials. So notice that it's still to your advantage to use the queue if you can, because it's valid most of the time. Okay? All right, so that's the basic task. Um, this gives you a sense of the timing of the display. So I, what I want to point out here is this is a very rapid stimulus sequence. So um, 100 milliseconds is one-tenth of a second. So there's 1,000 milliseconds in a second. So this cue shows up for just 50 milliseconds, then there's a 100 millisecond interval, and then the target shows up for 50 milliseconds. So it's a very rapid presentation, but you'd be surprised at how, quick, how easy this is to do, even with that rapid presentation. Okay, so what we measure then, is our dependent measure, is response time. We're simply objectively measuring how long it takes people to respond to these displays. And we're doing that as a function of this validity variable, whether the, whether the cue was in fact valid or invalid with respect to telling you where the target appeared. Okay? So when you do this kind of experiment, you get this kind of result, which may seem unsurprising. You probably could have predicted that graph, right? So when the target shows up where the cue was, you're faster than when it shows up uh, somewhere else where the, where the cue wasn't. Okay? And you might say to yourself, well, well, of course, right? So, you know, the cue's telling you where the target's going to be. I mean, you can just move your eyes there, and we know that if your eyes are somewhere and the target appears where you're looking, you're probably going to be faster. Well, the interesting thing is that we know that this is not eye movements. Remember I said that the timing here is very rapid. Well, we know that it takes about 250 milliseconds, a quarter of a second, to even initiate an eye movement. So if someone is, is fixated at the, at the fixation cost at the beginning of the trial, then we know that they haven't moved their eyes at all by the time the trial is over. So what that tells us is that this reaction time pattern we're getting reflects something that's going on inside the head, right? It's not movements of the eyes, it's something that's going on inside the head. And what we argue is that's the operation of selective attention. So when you're provided with that cue that is highly valid, the idea is that you move your attention to the location of the cue, and that enhances your performance if the target appears at that location. Now what it also suggests is that movements of attention are more rapid than movements of the eyes, that those two are dissociated, right? So you, normally we are attending where we're looking, but we've also all had the experience of looking one place and attending, you know, you're having a nice conversation with somebody at a party, but you're much more interested and someone, you know, two people away. So you're really attending over there, but you're looking straight forward. So we have that kind of uh, uh, intuitive notion. Well, this kind of result tells us that, that attention movements can be independent of the eyes, and they're more rapid than the eyes. In fact, some people have argued that attentional movements always precede <coughs> eye movements. Okay, so what we have here, then, is objective evidence 
for this thing that we call selective attention. And let me just say a word about one kind of model of selective attention that is used a lot in the literature, and that's something called the spotlight model of attention. So the notion is, one way of thinking about performance in this task is that subjects have a kind of spotlight of attention that they can move around in the visual field independently of the eyes. And that what they're doing is when the cue appears, you're actually moving this spotlight of attention to that location. When the target appears at that location, you're, uh, you're much faster. Okay, so that's the spotlight model of attention. All right, so what I've just described is an experiment that provides evidence for these kinds of voluntary movements of attention. Right? The cue is valid most of the time. It's to your advantage to move attention if you can. And so what the results tell us is that, yes, indeed, people can voluntarily move their attentional spotlight. But what about this other possibility? Is it possible that there might be stimuli in the environment that would produce a kind of involuntary shift of the attentional spotlight, that would kind of grab the spotlight of attention? Um, so are there stimulus properties that can capture attention? Larson, Larson thinks so. So I love this cartoon. It's one of my favorites. So uh, I'll read the caption for you. You probably can't see it. It says, when the monster came, Lola, like the peppered moth and arctic hare, remained motionless and undetected. Harold, of course, was immediately devoured. <laughs> so what Larson is telling us is that the perceptual systems of monsters, at least Cyclops, no less, um, is responsive to what, what you might call temporal discontinuities in the environment. So the abrupt onset of information, movement, changes in information over time. Remember, Lola is sitting still, right? So she's not detected. Um, and also spatial discontinuities, changes in properties over space. So again, Harold does not blend in with the background the way, the way Lola does. So Larson is telling us that, yeah, there are, seem to be properties that, that get detected and capture attention. Um, in the 1980s, there was a lot of research suggesting that one property in particular seems to grab attention, and that was something called abrupt onset. And that's basically uh, the nature of the cue that I was just describing. When something flashes on in the periphery, that's an abrupt onset of a stimulus. And the notion was that these abrupt onsets tend to grab your attention. You may have had this experience. Remember uh, on 95, there used to be a, 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 what do you call it? Not a bulletin board, a um, billboard. Thank you very much. Uh, for Spartlet's water. Anybody remember this billboard? And it had these little uh, things that would blow in the wind, sparkly things that would blow in the wind. And every time I'd go down 95, I'd find myself drawn to it if the sun was out and they'd be flashing. And, you know, it's a great example of, of attentional capture. Okay, experimental evidence for attentional capture. Here's one example. This is an experiment by Remington, Johnson, and Yantis. And these guys were out at NASA Ames Research Center when I did, I did a fellowship out there. Um, they did exactly the same kind of spatial cueing task that I just described, but they changed one thing. Very cleverly changed one thing, and that is the cue validity. So in the previous experiment I described, the cue was 75% valid and 25% invalid. All they did was to invert that, right? So now the cue is 25% valid and 75% invalid. So 75% of the time, the cue is going to put you in the wrong location. And the participants are told right up front that that's the case, right? That this thing is going to put you in the wrong location most of the time, so you should ignore it if you can. So there's no incentive whatsoever in this experiment to voluntarily allocate your attention to this cue. So here's the logic. If you still get a validity effect, that is if you're still faster on valid trials than you are on invalid trials, 
then that means attention has shifted that to that location in violation of your intentions, right? You follow the logic? That's, that's key here. That's a key point for this methodology. So because it's most of the time invalid, there's no incentive to voluntarily move your attention. So if we do get a cueing effect, that suggests that that cue captured your attention. And that's exactly what happened in this experiment. So even when the cue was 75% invalid, they still got a significant cueing effect, a still different, a significant uh, difference between valid and invalid trial. So this is a signature of attentional capture. It's suggesting that this abrupt onset is, in fact, capturing attention. OK. Uh, they had just completed this study when I was out there. Um, and one day we were, oh, and by, before I get into that, let me just say that this, this view in the 1980s was, was that there are salient stimulus properties that capture your attention no matter what, that you have no control over, that abrupt onsets are just going to get you and there's nothing you can do about it, okay? And the notion was that the reason this is true, it has kind of evolutionary story here, that the reason these kinds of events capture your attention is that they're important ecologically, right? So if you have something appearing where there wasn't something before, potential predator. If something's moving that was previously stationary, potential predator. So the idea is we have evolved perceptual systems that are particularly responsive to these kinds of, uh, of events. Okay, but as I said, I was out there uh, uh, at the time these, these guys were doing this experiment, and we were sitting there one day looking at the displays, and something occurred to us, right? If you look at this experiment, it is true that this cue is an abrupt onset, right? It's an onset cue that seems to be capturing attention. But it also occurred to us that the target is also an abrupt onset, right? So we thought, oh, wow, I wonder if it's the case that the reason this abrupt onset cue is a capturing attention is because, in essence, the task is encouraging you to look for onsets, because that's the property that tells you the target has arrived. Right? We didn't really think that was the case. This was just kind of, oh, well, okay, we have to rule that out. Right? So here's what we did to kind of rule it out, supposedly. Uh, so here's the question: Might might onsets, by capture by onsets, might that depend on whether you're actually looking for onsets? Here's here's what we did. Very simple design, right? We just systematically manipulated the property that defined the cue and the property that defined the target. So in one case, both the cue and the target were onsets. That's a replication of the study that I just described to you, okay? Onset cue paired with an onset target. In another condition, and this is the crucial one, we had an onset cue, exactly the same onset cue, paired with a target that's defined not by onset, but by color. And I'll show you what I mean by that in a second, but I just want to get the design uh, out to you. So if, in fact, capture is dependent on what you're looking for, then we might not find capture here, that onsets might not capture when you're looking for something other than onset. We also had a condition where the cue was defined by color, and I'll show you what that is in a second. And we compare that with targets that were defined by onsets or defined by color. So here's a case where the cue is onset and the target is onset. Again, that's a replication of the study that I just described. Here's the critical condition where the, the target is now defined by color. So notice that there are characters in all four boxes, right? But the thing that defines the target is the one that's different in color. They're looking for the red one here. So onset isn't going to tell you where the target is. It tells you when the, the, the display has arrived, but it doesn't tell you where the target is. So the idea is we've put people in, to, uh, look, got people to set for color rather than onset. Here's a case where the cue now is defined by color. And we can compare, uh, pair that with an onset target. And then the final condition where you have a color cue paired with a color target. So if, in fact, onsets capture you no matter what, 
then we might get this pattern, that onset cues are special. They capture you, and it doesn't matter whether you're looking for onsets or color. We should get cueing effects in both of those conditions. Okay? If, however, capture depends on what you're looking for, then we might get a pattern like this, where we get capture only when the cue property matches the target property. All right? Notice this is also telling us that color cues might be, uh, um, might be salient enough to actually capture attention if you're looking for color targets. Everybody clear on the design? Okay. All right, so here are the results. So again, we're measuring reaction time, same uh, dependent measure as a function of Q validity, valid cues and invalid cues. And remember that a Q validity effect is our signature of attentional capture. If you're faster on valid trials and invalid trials, when, the, when we know that the Q is, is uh, completely irrelevant, then we know that attention has been captured. All right, so when looking for an onset target, an onset cue produces a significant cueing effect. That's a replication of the study that uh, I just described. A color cue does not, okay? No cueing effect here for a color cue. So when you're looking for an onset target, a color cue does nothing. However, when you look for a color target, the very same onset cue that produced capture when you're looking for an onset target now produces no evidence of capture. There's no cueing effect at all here, okay? And the same color cue that produced no capture over here is now producing quite a bit of capture, a big cueing effect over here. So we were like, wow, and published them really quick. <laughs> published those results really quick. And we proposed this idea that we now refer to as contingent attentional capture. And the idea is that the capture of spatial attention is not specific to particular stimulus properties but instead is contingent on what we call top-down attentional control settings, right? So the idea is that the attention allocation system is configurable, right? So depending on what task you have to do, you set the system for a particular property like color or onset. But then once the system is set, then any stimulus that has that property will in fact capture your attention in violation of your uh, intentions, okay? So we're still getting attentional capture, but that capture is contingent on how the system is set. Okay. Um, now, when we when we actually uh, published this paper, uh, some of the reviews we got back said, "Well, okay, you've shown this with uh, color, so an onset, but you know there may be properties out there that are so salient that they capture your attention no matter how you're set." Um, and one of the ones they mentioned was one of the ones that Larson also mentioned, and that's motion. Right. So motion is a really salient property. It's correlated with living things, right? Um, so maybe the system is particularly sensitive to motion, and motion might override kind of top-down set. Um, in fact, Larson, another Larson cartoon. So the, the caption here is, uh, Bobby, jiggle grandpa's rat so it looks alive, please. So the point he's making is that motion is um, a sign of um, animation, right? Something that's alive. All right and presumably captures your grandpa's snake's attention. So the way we looked at this was to do exactly the same kind of experiment, but now include motion as a potential uh, capturing property. So now we had cues that were defined by color or motion, and we had targets that were defined by color or motion. So if this contingent attentional capture idea is correct, we should get the same pattern. That is, we should get capture only when the cue property and the target property match. Um, and just, just show you how we, we did this. Uh, for motion, we use something called apparent motion. I'm not going to get into the details of that. But phenomenally, when subjects view these displays, 
what they see is that one of those sets of four dots appears to, to rapidly rotate around one of the boxes. So here we have a motion cue paired with a color target. And that's the critical condition, right? If you're set for color, will this highly salient motion cue actually capture your attention? All right, so again, that's the pattern. Um, if motion is really salient and can override top-down set, then we might see capture up here as well. So even when set for color, motion might capture. Okay, here are the results. And the bottom line is we get the same pattern as we got before. So when you're looking for a color target, color cues capture your attention um, and motion cues do not, right? But when you're looking for a motion target, the same motion cues capture attention um, and the same color cues that captured when you were looking for color do not capture when you're looking. What did I do? Yep. Okay. Do not capture when you're looking for where was I motion. Okay. So we get the same pattern. And by the way, we've done lots of studies with lots of different stimulus properties, brightness, uh, form, and, and so forth. And we have yet to find something that can kind of break through this top-down set. All right. One uh, other. Uh, and by the way, that clock is fast. In case you're attending to that clock, it's five minutes fast. So I still have time. Um, let me tell you about one other uh, uh, line of research we pursued in the context of this contingent attentional capture idea. We started asking questions about the nature of these control settings, right? So we're arguing that capture is contingent on how you set the system. So we've been asking questions about, well, what's the nature of these control settings? For what kind of things can you set the system? So one of the questions we ask is, how specific are these attentional control settings? So um, for example, can you, in fact, set for specific colors? We kind of assumed that in the, in the studies I just showed you, in that we told people to look for the red thing. But it's not clear that they were necessarily looking for the red thing. right? So when a color cue captured paired with a color cue target, they may not have been looking for red. They could have just been looking for the thing that's different in color. So to really look at this, what we did was uh, a pretty simple experiment. We just took this kind of color cue, color target condition. And we just manipulated the specific colors that define the cue and the target. So the cue could be red or green, and the target could be red or green. And so again, if uh, attentional control settings can be set for specific colors, then we should get capture in these two conditions, but not these two conditions. If all you can do is set for color in general, then we should get capture everywhere. Right? Okay. Um, so here's a case where you have a red cue paired with a red target and a red cue paired with a green target. So again, if you can set for specifically for green, then this red cue should not capture your attention, and vice versa. And what we get, again, is the same pattern. So when you're looking for a red target, red cues capture your attention. When you're looking for a green target, they do not. When you're looking for a red target, green cues do not capture your attention. When you're looking for a green target, those same green cues do capture your attention. So it looks like you can set the system for very specific feature properties like particular colors. And by the way, we've done lots of other studies looking at, at kind of the, the different classes of properties that you can set the system for using this kind of task. Okay, let me um, just kind of finish out this, this portion by talking a little bit about the applied implications of this idea. So what we're arguing then is that the degree to which our attention is captured depends on how the allocation system is configured. And that configuration is dependent on kind of task demands, right? So it is alterable. You can alter the system to be set for different properties. So let me tell you about one really cool study that I love. Uh, it was done by my buddy uh, Steve Most down at the University of Delaware. Um, he did a driving study where he put people in a simulator, OK? So you're in this driving simulator. 
And the task was to drive down the road, okay? And you'll notice, I don't know whether you can see this or not in the back, but there are little road signs here. So there's a little square sign here with arrows. And some of the arrows are blue and some of them are yellow. In this case, there's one arrow pointing to the right. Well, these signs came up at intersections. And what you had to do as the driver is turn in the direction of a particular colored arrow. So one subject, for example, might be set to look for the yellow arrows because you're supposed to turn in response to the direction that the yellow arrow is pointing. So most assumed that uh, what you're doing is setting the system for the color yellow. Okay. Now, what he did was, uh, on, on, at some point during this driving simulation, a motorcycle pulls in front of you, okay? unexpectedly pulls in front of you. And the thing he manipulated was whether the color of the motorcycle was consistent with your top-down set. Right? So if I'm looking for yellow arrows, the question is, what will happen to my ability to avoid a collision with this yellow motorcycle versus a green or red motorcycle, for example? You follow the logic here? Um, so, and I don't, again, this is kind of low for you folks in the back. Um, but he took two measures, two behavioral measures here. One was braking latency. So how quickly did you press on the brake when this uh, motorcycle turns in front of you? And the other is percentage of collisions, right? So he actually measured whether you collided with the motorcycle or not. And that's measured here as a function of the match between the color of the motorcycle and the color of the arrows that's telling you where to, to point. And what you see is that people are significantly faster at braking when the motorcycle color matches the color that you're looking for. And there's a huge effect in the percentage of collisions, right? When they match, only 7% of the time did people collide with the motorcycle. When they mismatched, that happened 36% of the time, all other conditions being equal. Okay? So here's a nice example of how this contingent attentional capture idea would play out in the real world. It can have some applied uh, implications. Okay, so let me, just, uh, let me just summarize what I've tried to do here today. First of all, I'm, I'm trying to tell you about my particular little research corner um, and the, uh, my research program, which focuses on this idea of contingent attentional capture theory. Right. The basic idea being that the capture of spatial attention is contingent on top-down attentional control settings, that the system is configurable. Okay? The system is configurable, it's, it's malleable, and if you think about it, that, that makes sense. Although it might be good to have some, some, some kind of hardwired situations, there are also cases where you don't want attention to be uh, um, distracted. You don't want be, to be distracted by stimuli that are not relevant to your current goals. So that's been our argument, that, that this configurability of the attention allocation system actually makes some sense. It's post hoc, but nonetheless, it seems to make some sense. Um, uh, the things I haven't told you about um, with respect to my research program, just to let you know, that these aren't the only studies I've done in 20 years. Um, I've also looked at other kinds of properties, like brightness, size, form, and so forth, looking to see whether they all follow this kind of attentional, uh, contingent attentional capture pattern. I've looked at a number of alternative explanation for the spatial cueing uh, results. I have a, uh, there's a guy in Holland who doesn't believe any of what I'm saying, has a completely different perspective, and if you want to know, I can tell you about it, but you don't need to know because he's wrong. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so I've, I've done a number of experiments looking at, as his, at his interpretation and shown that he's wrong. Um, we've looked at the nature and flexibility of these top-down attentional control settings. 
We've also looked at the notion of contingent uh, attentional capture across time. The experiments I've talked about today deal with the allocation of attention in space, but there's also some really interesting ways of measuring how we allocate attention across time. So you could be attending to a particular location, but over time you might vary in how much attention you're paying to that location. So if you're watching TV, for example, your attention might vary when a, when a commercial comes on, something like that. So we've actually shown that contingent capture holds for allocation in time as well as space. We've looked at contingent uh, attentional capture in, in what we might call special populations like aging adults, uh, schizophrenics, and so forth. Um, and that's been kind of interesting stuff as well. So this is the kind of program of research I've been involved with uh, for the last 20 years or so. Um, and then finally, I want to say that what I've tried to do today is, is show you a good example of how we do research in cognitive psychology. And that's probably the bigger point here, is to give the general community an idea of what cognitive psychology is all about. So what we did here was to propose an internal construct something like the spotlight of attention, right? And you can't see the spotlight. Again, it's a process that's unobservable. Um, and what we've been able to do is explore the mechanisms by which this spotlight is moved around. And we've been able to do that by manipulating factors or variables such as the salience of the stimulus, the top-down set of the, uh, of the subject, and so forth. And by looking at patterns of reaction time and error rate, we can infer what those mechanisms are. All right? So objective patterns of response times allow us to infer a mechanism like contingent attentional capture. Um, OK, and then finally, uh, hopefully what I've done is shown you that these results might actually have some applied implications as well. So for example, for uh, the, the luggage screeners in the airport, um, knowing something about contingent attentional capture might inform the designers of these devices such that certain kinds of items might be highlighted in a way that they would capture the, uh, the screener's attention. Right? Or uh, more importantly, in situations like driving, it might give us uh, a sense of what kinds of situations might distract us. You're supposed to be laughing here. I love this picture. Okay, so we got a dog driving a truck. With, 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 I don't know whether you can see this. This is his iPod over here in the hole. Okay, thanks for your attention. Happy to take questions? Go ahead. Okay. Um, so back to the movie with the plates and the scarf. Yep. Do we have a sort of a default top-down setting that made us say, look at their faces and listen to them, rather than look at the plates and the scarf? Or did you actually configure our top-down setting by talking about how banal the conversation was before we even started watching the movie, yeah. so that we were all actually thinking, oh, he's right, this really is a banal conversation. That's a really, that's a great question. And, um, you know, we, our perspective on this is that it is very rare, there are very few circumstances under which some sort of top-down set is not in place, where the system hasn't been configured in some way. And my guess is that when you're looking at a movie, for example, you tend to have a top-down set to look at the faces, right? Because that's, that's the part of the movie, at least in a, in a dialogue, that's giving you the most information about what's happening in the scene, right? So my guess is that your top-down set is to be paying attention to faces and so forth. Now, it's possible that what I said to you also influenced that set. 
but my guess is that we come into a situation like that, look, you know, looking for changes in faces rather than other things. It is. It has been tested for. So, you know, in fact, I have a, a colleague in, in the department who has done work on this. This, this that phenomenon is something known as change blindness. Um, and uh, Diego Fernandez Duque has done some really nice work on change blindness and the factors that influence it. Um, and even if subjects, I guess, if even if they're not given any particular instructions, you still get this effect, right? So it doesn't depend on whether you're actually telling them what to look at. Do I have that right? That's right. Yeah. And if you want to know more, you can get the price. So, good question, though. Question. In the picture with the uh, driver, uh, the dog or the driver? Phone, no, no, the cell phone. Okay, Would the implied lack of attention also uh, apply to the, a passenger in the car having a conversation? Great question. So the question was, um, you know, if you argue that talking on a cell phone is distracting and influences your driving ability, isn't it also the case that? having a passenger in the car that you're holding a conversation with, shouldn't that also impair your performance? Theoretically and logically, it should. And in fact, I would argue that many of the teenage driving laws that, don't, you know, that, that restrict the number of other teenagers in the car when, when a teenager is driving is related to that point. However, um, the thing about having a passenger in the car is that the passenger is also able to monitor the driving situation. So even though you're holding a conversation with that person, they're also able to say, oh, something's coming up here. And they're liable to be quiet, right? And, and let you drive, let you do what you need to do, right? So logically, you're correct. But I think it's that kind of um, the fact that that person also has access to what's going on that makes it not as dangerous. Yeah. Uh, with regard to something like ADD, would you ex expect to see less of an effect of the kind of cue target matchup top-down like control? Someone, I guess, can't. Well, I, that's that's a really difficult question to ask uh, answer. No, it's not difficult to ask at all. You just ask. Um, it really, you know, ADD is a pretty broad umbrella, right? And it really depends on what theory you have with respect to what's producing attention deficit disorder. Okay. So if you think it is a disorder with respect to executive functioning, and I consider this kind of setting or configuring the system as a form of what we refer to as executive functioning, then yeah, maybe if they have a deficit in the ability to, to do those kinds of executive functions, then might, you might predict that they would be captured by lots of stuff. So if they're unable to set the system for particular properties, they may sure, show more distractible uh, behavior, which is a pretty typical pattern for those people. So I don't know if anyone has actually used this paradigm with, with ADD people. That would be interesting to look at. It's a good question. Going once. <laughs> yeah. So does the mindset make you more sensitive to the dimension of the mindset, or does it make you less sensitive to the, to the other one? Right. So what you're getting at is what is the specific mechanism by which you get this cueing effect, right? Yeah. So you know, we know that valid Q trials are faster than invalid Q. Well, is that because 
that uh, when you're set to look for red, for example, that all you, you kind of the system kind of turns up the gain on all red things so that you're more likely to go to a red thing? Or is it that you turn down the gain on green things? And we have looked at that without, a, it's, it's a difficult um, question to answer. But one of the ways we've done that is by manipulating the certainty of the target property and or the Q property, right? So you could have a situation where you know the Q, if it appears, is going to be green, okay? But you don't know whether the target's going to be red or blue, let's say, okay? So if you're able to turn down the gain on green things, then you shouldn't get captured by that green thing, okay? Um, and vice versa. So, and then, and then you could have a queue that um, is variable across trials, but you always know what the target property is. So we've done those kinds of experiments and have gotten um, a big mess, basically. <laughs> so I don't have a specific answer to that. Um, there's, there's, there is some evidence that um, there are inhibitory processes going on. So there's some work with, I just read a paper this afternoon, reviewed a paper this afternoon um, using ERPs, and there's a, uh, I'm sorry, ERPs are event-related potentials. So you can actually measure electrical activity in the head um, as a function of these different kinds of displays. And there are different um, portions of that electrical wave that, that uh, reflect mental processes. Okay, that's a really short description of ERP. Um, but there's one particular component of the wave that's an indication of inhibiting a particular location. And there is some evidence that you get these kinds of inhibitory effects in a contingent capture paradigm. So it's probably a little bit of both, turning up the gain on the target property, but also this kind of inhibitory process associated with non-target properties. The, the reason why I ask is to make me think of the ADHD question. Say again, the ADD the, question? The ADHD question, you know, this is, we can have hopefully next week and so You're, you're buying, right? It's interesting, yeah. I'm buying, yeah. Okay. Uh, that maybe with ADHD population, you might make different predictions. If you have a population that kind of put the mindset, would they be it, yeah, it's, it's, it's just going to depend on your model of ADD, right? So it's just going to depend on what you think is producing that. And it's, it's a pretty broad syndrome, so. Yeah. Going back to the uh, fighter pilot in yeah. Vietnam War, right. um, as a result of, of any of this research, um, have there been any changes in protocols and communication and what they attend to up there in the sky? That's a great question. I, I do know in the domain of visual displays. So visual displays in aircraft have ch changed dramatically since the early days of aviation, where every every uh, instrument was a circle with with an arrow on it, right? So, and the design of those new displays have been in the context of what we know about selective attention. Um, in the case of of auditory communications, um, you may have. I I don't know whether he said there's another interview in this same film where a, a pilot talks about um, handling this overload by actually turning things off. You know, he, this, you know I wish I had that clip too, because he talks about how, you know, there was just too much going on and I needed to focus on flying, so I would turn off the sound that the anti-aircraft missiles would make as they're coming up. And this guy also says, and I turned off the mic to the guy in the back to me, because I know what I'm doing. I don't want to hear what he's doing. 
right? I want him to hear me, but he doesn't, you know, that kind of typical pilot behavior. Um, uh, well, we've all ignored our wingman at some point. That's true. That's true. Right. Um, so, you know, I, it's hard to imagine how you could use, well, I don't know, maybe it's not hard to imagine how you might use technology, but the technology would have to know what information is relevant at any given point in time and irrelevant. I mean, you can imagine kind of, you know, turning down the volume on some sources of information and turning them up on other. But you've got to know at any given point in time what's the most relevant piece of information. And unfortunately, well, Fortunately, humans are much better at that, doing that on the fly than, than a machine would be. So, yeah. good question. Yeah. Okay. I have a long list of questions that I'm not going to ask most of. Okay. <laughs> so, um, is the idea of a top-down uh, attention setting mm -hmm. also relevant in research about multitasking and people's effective ability to multitask? So that basically people are trying to have two different top-down settings acting simultaneously. <laughs> right. So it's a little different in that in the case of multitasking, you're performing two tasks at the same time rather than setting for stimulus properties. Right. So you'd be set. You have what's called a task set, and certainly there's lots of research that's been done on something called task switching. Okay. So. You can put people in experiments where they, they're given very simple stimuli like numbers or digits and so forth, but um, across um, presentations of these stimuli, you have to perform different tasks on them. And, and you look at what happens when you perform all one task in a block or you interleave tasks, and you get what's called a task switching cost, right? And there's a lot of debate in the literature about what produces that cost. But one idea is that you have to swap out this task set, right? In order to do a task, you, f you first have to kind of load the task set that says, OK, here's the task I have to perform. Here's the mapping of responses that I need for this particular task and so forth. So in order to do a task, you have to swap in that set. And now if you're provided with another task, you have to get rid of that one and bring in the new one, right? Um, so it turns out to be very hard to hold two different task sets at the same time. So no matter how good you think you are at task switching, at being able to do hold two task sets at the same time, the research suggests that that's not really what you're doing, that, that you really are switching out. Now, that said, you can switch pretty quickly. These costs are on the order of milliseconds, you know, 50 to 100 milliseconds. Um, but nonetheless, you know, they can be cumulative, and, and so, you know, Masters of involuntary attention capture. Well, that's a really interesting point. I mean, there are there are cognitive psychologists uh, today who are literally working with magicians um, for just that reason. So, how is it that magicians are able to fool people so well? And a lot of it has to do with attracting attention to one place and then doing what you have to do in another place. I don't know whether anybody's working with uh, Penn and Teller, but I do know that they they work with other magicians. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I really appreciate coming out, you know, it's, and staying away.